Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. God's divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that through these he has given to us exceedingly great and magnificent promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful we can be here to study your word, to learn your word, because you have revealed yourself to us. You have informed us of who you are as the unique creator God of the universe who exists in a triune entity, and that you have created us in your image and likeness. And that was so that we could learn about you, so that we could have fellowship with you. Sin separates us from you, but you provided the solution by sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, where we were reconciled to you, and there is now peace between those who are believers in Christ and you. Father, the ramifications of what the Apostle Paul taught in the first three chapters for our personal life, for the way we think, the way we live, the way we act, Father, has incredible uh, dimensions to it. And many of these are laid out in these coming chapters. And we pray that we might be responsive to the teaching of your word, learning what you have to say and what God the Holy Spirit drives home to us, that we may indeed learn to walk worthy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we are going to continue with our study. And this time, as opposed to the last three lessons when I have been giving overviews of the first, the first chapter, then two and three, and then four, five, down to six, nine, we're going to begin to look at the details of what the Lord has revealed to us and the significance of these particular details. And this morning, I want to focus us on one aspect of chapter four, and that is the fact that we are, um, that our calling, we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. This is a phrase that is a little bit ambiguous to a lot of ears, and so we need to take some time to understand it and to unpack it because it is the foundation of our Christian life. We are called, and that doesn't mean, as many people say, just simply invited into salvation, that this phrase is more significant than that. So we will see it as, uh, a, as something similar to a specialized vocation or profession, and I'll explain that as we get to it. So Paul begins by saying, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So he starts off, or just as a reminder rather, uh, we have 12 paragraphs in this section and in the first, uh, in the fourth chapter as we study this, we'll look at the walk in unity which takes us down through verse 16. And then from 17 down through 24, we will talk about putting on the new man. And that is one of the most foundational passages for the spiritual life. And then we have a series of commands given in verses 25 to 32 that center upon the basic command of do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So... 4.1. I therefore, 
the prisoner of the Lord. So what does he mean by therefore? An important word, you've heard me talk about it many times, and there are some times when the therefore is simply taking you from the verse or two before into an additional thought as the writer is developing their thinking. But then in in Scripture, there are a few passages where the therefores are major significant therefores. And this is one of those therefores. It draws our attention to the fact that the writer is drawing some conclusions from what has been said before. Now, if you study or read, and I know that there are people who are reading along in this commentary or that commentary, and they may run into the fact that there are a, a number of commentaries that will say, well, this is simply drawing a conclusion from the uh, from the last two verses in chapter 3. Others who say, well, it's a little broader than that. It's from the uh, beginning of that last uh, section, uh, which it begins back in verse, I think that's verse uh, 14. Yes, verse 14. And yet, when we look at this structure of the first, these first um, six verses, we recognize that Paul is giving us the structure of the main part of this epistle. Those of you who went through the study of James with me, whether you listened to it at some later time or were there when I taught it at uh, Preston City, I pointed out that the key verse there is to be uh, slow to speak, slow to anger, um, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, that that laid out the three divisions of the book. And often we find in Scripture that there is a verse or a couple of verses that the writer lays out basically the outline of, of the epistle or of the book. And so it's important when you study to try to learn those things and not just impose an outline or a structure upon an epistle, but to try to let the author uh, give us that. This is great literature, and great literature uh, often tells us why it is being written and gives us the clues as to its purpose through some sort of thesis, uh, thesis statement. And so when we look at these first six verses, I think it's clear that the therefore refers back to everything that was said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So I drew this little diagram because it's a little bit in, in sort of a reverse order. In the first three verses, Paul is going to summarize what is coming in chapters 4 and 5 down through 6, 9. And so that, uh, therefore, he says, I beseech you to walk worthy, and the next chapters are going to tell us what that worthy walk is all about, and that that worthy walk is based on that which was said in the first three chapters. And there are a lot of places that I'll point out where there are certain key words or key phrases that are used in these chapters that had, we were first introduced to in chapters 1 through 3. And so Paul is drawing out the implications of that. And then when we come to verses 4 through 6, and in 4 through 6 the emphasis is on uh, the uh, the unity of the Spirit, the things that we all have in common. That is, that all Jew and Gentile believers have in common. That takes us back, of course, to chapter 2, where we learn that Christ, uh, at, the, at his death on the cross, abolished the enmity that was between Jew and Gentile, he created peace between Jew and Gentile, which was grounded in the Mosaic law so that that was eradicated. And then at the cross also, Christ abolished the uh, enmity between God and man so that the barrier of sin, the pen sin penalty was paid for uh, at, the, at the cross. So when we get to Verse 4, we will talk about one body, one spirit. You are called in one hope of your calling. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so the basis for those unity statements of 4, 5, and 6 is found in chapter 2, really everything that Paul says from 1 uh, through 3. So rather than starting off with the first three verses focusing on what he has said and the next three focuses on what he's going to say, he reversed that. The first three verses summarize what's coming, and then in the next section he relates it back to what he has uh, already said. In the second phrase of Ephesians 4.1, he again repeats the fact that he is a prisoner of the Lord. And he is literally a prison, a prisoner. Ephesians and uh, Philippians and Colossians and Philemon are called the prison epistles because they were written by the Apostle Paul when he was... Uh, in prison and under house arrest, basically, we'll see that uh, when we study uh, Philippians, but that they, they relate to that time. He was arrested in Jerusalem, if you remember from our study of Acts, that he had taken a vow to go to Jerusalem. When he complete, he went to the temple to complete that vow, and he was recognized by the Judaizers and they uh, started a riot, and this uh, necessitated the Roman troops coming in, and they leveled charges against Paul as one who was a disturber of the peace, so he had to be arrested. And then he was kept uh, in prison there, basically at the headquarters of the uh, governor of, of Judea in Caesarea by the sea, and he wasn't getting anywhere, and so finally he uh, just appealed to Caesar, which he could do utilizing his Roman citizenship to get uh, a just decision. And so then he is taken by ship. There's a shipwreck, and he finally ends up uh, in Rome where he is under house arrest for approximately two years when he is uh, released. And then he goes on to probably another missionary journey. We only have hints of it. He, it tradition says he did make it to Spain. Uh, he revisited places in Greece, and then he was arrested a second time, taken to Rome, and that is when he was, um, was beheaded. And that was uh, his time of promotion. So he was a prisoner of the Lord. He's not just talking metaphorically in terms of his obedience uh, to the Lord. He t uses the phrase bondage to the Lord, that he is a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 6. Here it is talking about the fact that he is in prison. Why is he in prison? He is in prison because of his uh, dedication to the mission, the ministry, and the message that God gave him. And that's how he started the uh, third chapter, where he said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Now, he doesn't repeat uh, the for you Gentiles here, but he has made that point that that is a focal point of his message, to proclaim the mystery that is the previously unrevealed plan of God that through the cross he would reconcile Jew and Gentile together, thus making one new body, one new man, one new building, one new temple. And so all that is said in 2 and 3 is sort of picked up um, and by the, you, repeating this phrase. And then he says, uh, I beseech you, and this is a somewhat antiquated English word that still hangs in the, in the New King James Version, and it is the Greek verb parakaleo. This is a very common word that is used. The verb is used a lot of times. It has the idea of urging someone, of significantly urging someone, strongly urging someone, which I think is probably the uh, best way to translate it when Paul uses it here as well as in the parallel passage in Romans 12.1. 
That's another one of those big therefores that we have in Scripture. Uh, In Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul uh, explains all of the different features of our spiritual life. He starts off with the condemnation of all Gentiles, then he moves into the uh, end of the first chapter, second chapter, the condemnation of all Jews, concluding that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see how close that parallels what he says at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, that all have sinned. Well, if all have sinned, how can we be righteous? And so chapter 4 of Romans tells us how we can be declared righteous. The pattern goes back to Abraham in Romans chapter uh, chapter 4, goes back to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or imputed to him as righteousness. So this has always been the pattern in Scripture, that man's basic problem is as a sinner, he was under the penalty of death. Christ died for that penalty. That doesn't mean that his death made us spiritually alive. It just means that uh, penalty was paid. But because we were born spiritually dead, that's Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 1, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That tells us that we're born physically alive, but spiritually dead or separated from God, alienated from the life of God, as Paul states it in Ephesians uh, 4.18. And so that is our condition. We are, the sin penalty has been paid, but we are still spiritually dead when we come into this world and we lack righteousness. So we have to somehow have righteousness. How do we get it? Well, the pattern's always the same. You go back to the Old Testament. Those who believed in the promise of God for salvation would be given righteousness. That's what Abraham is talking about. Now, in the Old Testament, they're looking forward to the cross, and they're looking forward to the fulfillment of God's plan that he would redeem a people from the human race. And this had its inception in the first hint in Genesis uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 15, when God uh, said to the serpent that uh, the seed of the woman would crush his head. And so this is developed, and you've traced that line of the seed. That's the purpose of the genealogies all the way through uh, Genesis and Leviticus and on through Chronicles. And you see that the line ends up in through the seed of David in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, Abraham is simply believing that God is going to provide a Savior from sin. He probably didn't have a lot more content than that, although we're not told very much. But if you look at Genesis 11 about where it tells us some other things that Abraham understood, we know that he understood a lot more than Genesis tells us that he understood. And so he's trusting God to save us from sin in the future. So because he believed God, it was imputed to him. God imputed to him his perfect righteousness, which is the same pattern today. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, that that we follow that same pattern. But now we believe that Christ has come, the seed has come, he's paid the penalty for our sin, and we are justified when we receive that righteousness of Christ. God looks at us as possessing that righteousness and declares us to be justified. That's what it means to be justified by faith alone. Romans 5 talks about reconciliation, and then Paul shifts gears to talk about the spiritual life or what is called sanctification, how we live in service to God. That's Romans 6, 7, and 8. And 8 ends with that great statement that that, that uh, I am convinced that neither height or death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Paul anticipates, as he frequently does, an objection. 
And the objection he anticipates is from the Jew who is saying, well, wait a minute, what about us? Seems like we got separated from the love of God. And so he answers that question in Romans 9, 10, and 11, concluding that uh, God will save uh, Israel at the end, that God has not forgotten Israel. God has not divorced himself from his plan uh, for Israel, that he will bring all things together and that the current state of Israel is not is not permanent. That's the first 11 chapters of Romans. Then he says, I, I therefore uh, beseech you. Everything he said, now he moves to application in Romans 12 through 16. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present... And when he gets to that, uh, that verb there to present, it is a present active in, excuse me, it's an aorist active infinitive, and it completes that, that first verb to urge you. I strongly urge you to do something. So it has the significance of an imperative. It's a, it's a command. And so this is uh, foundational in understanding the basis for the spiritual life that we are to present our bodies. Now, this isn't talking about just our physical body, but if we're going to present our body to serve God, everything else goes with it. Our soul is not separated from it. So it's just a way of speaking about the totality of our person and not just our thinking, but all of who we are. To present your bodies a living sacrifice, the word holy means set apart to God. It doesn't necessarily imply moral perfection. It implies separation for service. Now, a lot of people get the idea that the word holy has this idea of somehow you are exceptionally morally pure and and upright, but this Hebrew word kadosh is a word that uh, means to, is a word that's translated as holy, and it means to fundamentally to be sep- separated to God uh, for for service. It is applied to all of the uh, dishes, all of the candles, all of the uh, furniture of the tabernacle and the temple. Now, furniture can be neither moral nor immoral nor amoral. It is uh, not related to morality at all. So it is not to be used for everyday things, but it is set apart to the service of God. Furthermore, when you uh, read in a few places in Scripture and you read in the uh, non-biblical literature that is written in either Aramaic or Hebrew, that you have forms of uh, kadosh. The feminine noun is used to refer to the um, female uh, prostitute, ritual prostitutes who served the false gods, the Baals and the Asherah. And then you had another noun that was uh, the masculine noun that referred to the male prostitutes who were served. Now, serving, you know, being a male prostitute or a female prostitute certainly isn't anything that is morally pure. So we see that moral purity isn't inherent to that basic word, it, but they are set apart to the service of their, their God, their deity. So holy means that we are set apart to the service of God. We are to live our lives uh, to serve him and not to serve our own desires and our own lusts. So we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, uh, set apart to God, acceptable to him. Why? Not because of anything that we have done, but because we possess the righteousness of Christ. So we are acceptable to him. And then Paul says, which is your reasonable service. 12.2 goes on to describe that the way in which we do that is not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have to change the way we think and learn to think biblically. So this helps us understand from Romans 12.1 what the significance of Ephesians 4.1 is. It is a, an important transition within the uh, framework and the structure of this book. So I would translate it, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, 
strongly urge you to walk worthy of the calling. Now, the word walk is the Greek verb uh, peripateo. Here it's an aorist infinitive that completes the idea of I strongly urge you to do something. And the significance of that grammatical form using an aorist instead of a present probably emphasizes uh, urgency or priority. It's not it's, it, when you get away from the basic indicative mood, for those of you who know Greek, it's not emphasizing uh, time so much as, as what they call aspect. And so it's just all it's doing to what you take home from this is it's just stressing the priority of doing this. And it, it is to that it is a term that is used in some places literally to talk about a person moving, walking, step by step, mobilizing from one location to another. But Often in the Old Testament as well as New Testament, it is a term that is used to describe how a person lives their life, how they conduct their life, how they, uh, it's used to describe the Christian way of life in numerous passages. We walk by the Holy Spirit, we walk in the light, uh, we walk in truth. All of those are phrases that roughly talk about different aspects of the Christian way of life. So we are to walk worthy. Now, we're not walking worthy to get salvation. We're not walking worthy to somehow gain God's blessing. We are walking worthy as a reflection of our gratitude for all that God has done for us and a recognition that with our salvation comes a new life and that there is a responsibility in how we live that new life. It is uh, as if you were given a car. Somebody just gave you uh, a a brand new Mercedes and uh, you just love it, everything about it. But you have a responsibility now to take care of that vehicle. You have to follow all of the basic guidelines for servicing it. You have to check the tires and the air in the tires and ch- change the oil and all kinds of maintenance things. But if you just ignore that and just drive it without being uh, responsible in service, then what's going to happen? You're going to end up having a very expensive, a, a very expensive uh, ornament for your front yard. And that's pretty much how a lot of people's Christian life is. They, they've been given this incredible new life with all this uh, wealth of assets that are described in the first three chapters of Ephesians, but they don't know anything about it. They've never read the owner's manual. That's the Bible. And they've never come to understand what their responsibilities are towards this fabulous gift that God has given them. And the result is that it, it doesn't, not only does it not do them any good, but it is, it, it is, um, uh, they're not living according to the purpose for God that God has saved them at all. Paul says you were bought with a price and you are not your own. And Romans 6, as we've studied through numerous passages, talks about the fact that we are either making ourselves slaves to our sin nature or we're enslaving ourselves to God and righteousness. There's no third option. There's no middle road. There's no area of neutrality. And so with our uh, volition as we make decisions in life and whether we're following the lust patterns of our sin nature or the instructions of scripture, those are, those are the options. And so we are to walk in a manner that is responsible, uh, a walk in a manner uh, that is uh, worthy, that is in accord with what God has given uh, to us. And so that's the idea there. It is motivated by grace We understand God's grace, and that leads us to gratitude. And so we do the best that we can to learn the word and to let it change our lives through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. This is not a legalistic concept. 
Uh, some people think it's legalistic because they really don't want to recognize that they have a responsibility to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and that they've been given this new life and that with that come certain responsibilities. But we have other passages that talk about this. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we read, Only let your conduct, that is your way of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and I'm going to paraphrase this, whether I come and check up on you or whether I'm absent, I will hear of your affairs. I will hear about what is going on, uh, that you, you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, this is a fascinating uh, verse because it tells us, again, that we're to walk worthy, and here it's worthy of the gospel. Just another way of talking about the fact that we have trusted in the gospel and we have been saved, so we are to walk in a manner that is consistent with that. We have to learn how to do that. It doesn't happen uh, easily or instantly or overnight. And, And notice that the purpose of this is stated that you stand fast in one spirit. What's the emphasis there? It's that unity. This is the same thing that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's just uh, emphasizing something uh, a little different. Uh, stand fast in one spirit. So this is standing fast in, in unity and with one mind striving together for what? For the faith. Now the word the faith here isn't talking about the act of believing. It is talking about that body of truth that we believe. That is what is revealed in Scripture. So we have a problem today is a lot of people want to have unity and feel good about not having divisions. We're just, oh, all these different people have their different opinions and their different lifestyles, but we're just going to ignore all that and wrap our arms around each other and have a group hug and sing Kumbaya and go home and feel real good about ourselves all the time and not deal with the fact that that what we're doing is giving... Um, giving permission for all of this sin, that we're just uh, ignoring it. It is a unity of the faith, so that if people are denying what the Scripture says, then that's not a unity of the faith, and we don't compromise in order to make them feel included. This inclusiveness idea is straight out of the pit of hell. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Christian way of life. It has nothing to do with freedom, and it has nothing to do with the uh, historical understanding of freedom that is the foundation for this nation. It was imported simply as a way of creating division. How about that? We're going to be inclusive. If you don't want to include us, then you're dividing us, and you become the bad guy because you're not including everybody else. That's how it works. So Paul is saying one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And how many Christians don't even get the gospel right anymore? And you've got, on the one hand, those who have a purely heretical gospel who are just uh, teaching that you're saved by works or you're saved by sacraments or you're saved by baptism or you're saved uh, any number of other ways that all involve you doing something to help God out or you're doing everything and ignoring what God has done for you. Uh, But this is not the true gospel. So you have those who are obviously heretics. Then you have others who are more subtle in their uh, heresy and confusion of the gospel. And there are those who say that, well, if you're truly saved, then you're going to walk worthy of the gospel. But if you can't live like that, then you weren't truly saved. You didn't really trust in Christ as your Savior. And they have all kinds of verses that they quote and things that they say that make it, make themselves sound good, but it's just as heretical. It's not the faith of the gospel. The gospel is very clear. It's just trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ 
for our salvation because he paid the penalty for it on the cross. That's it. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are made a new creature in Christ, and we have new capacities, and we have new uh, assets, and we have new privileges, and we have a new life, but we may ignore all of that and live as if we're still an unbeliever. And there are a lot of Christians that do that. It doesn't mean they weren't saved. But you hear a lot of people say that, well, I can't really believe that so-and-so was saved. They, they, they say they trusted Christ when they were a kid. Now, sometimes they didn't trust Christ. They just say they're a Christian. That's a totally different thing. A lot of people go around saying, well, I've been a Christian since I was 12 years old. Well, what do you mean you a Christian? And they'll say, oh, I was baptized or I went through catechism or something like that. Well, did you ever trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? What do you mean? See, they didn't believe the gospel. There's a difference between professing that I'm a Christian and saying I'm a Christian and saying I trusted Christ as Savior. A lot of people say they're Christians, but they've never trusted Christ as Savior. So the issue is you have to make sure that somebody uh, is truly saved because they understood the gospel. So Paul is saying here that with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And there we have a word uh, that we'll uh, look at in just a minute in in our passage. So our conduct is to be worthy of the gospel. It's We're saved. Now we have to learn what that means. We uh, It doesn't happen automatically. In Colossians 1.10, Paul says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this involves something after salvation, and we have to learn how to walk worthy. We have to increase in the knowledge of God. This is a a lifetime pursuit for us is to learn everything that God expects of us, asks of us, all that he has provided for us, and our desire is to serve him. I think one of the greatest illustrations of the Old Testament is the concept of someone who was called a servant of the Lord. I can only think of two, Moses and David. And Moses was a murderer. David conspired to commit murder and and was an adulterer. But David is called a man after God's own heart. And many of you went through First and Second Samuel with me, and we saw all of these horrific sins that David committed. And we're thinking, how could God say that David is a man after his own heart? Well, it's because... Even though we're saved, we're still sinful. And some of us can commit horrible sins and have committed some horrible sins after after salvation. But even when we did, we knew that we loved the Lord and we weren't going to violate our allegiance to the Lord. See, David, David never succumbed to idolatry. You read through all the kings of Israel in the Old Testament, including his son Solomon, And they all turned to false gods. Their heart was not after God. David's was. Even when he sinned, he never lost his love and devotion to God. And and one of the biggest problems that Christians have had ever since Acts chapter 2 is that we think somehow when we trust Christ that that sin nature is minimized. Its power is changed, but it's still wicked and evil. And we still follow it out of habit and out of uh, the fact that we just just are, feel such pressure sometimes from the sin nature uh, to follow those lusts. So we have to learn all of these things, and only as a result of walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in the truth, does the Holy Spirit produce in us fruit. That's the next phrase, but Paul doesn't develop it in Colossians 1. He develops it in Galatians uh, chapter 5. And then 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says that you would walk worthy, and I included 11 so we'd have the context, 
As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here we have the fact that he, he's already, they're already saved and Paul continues to teach them and uh, challenge them and comfort them and charge them with their responsibilities so that they will learn to walk in a manner that is uh, appropriate and worthy that expresses their gratitude to the Lord. So that's the idea of, of, of walking worthy. And But what are we walking worthy of? Well, that's the next phrase, a phrase that seems easy to understand on the surface but might not be. It's the idea that we are to walk worthy of the calling with which you have uh, have been called. And this word that is translated calling is the word klesis, and it has with it the article. Now, in English, we have a definite article and an indefinite article. The indefinite article is, for example, we may say a car. Well, that can be any car. When we specify a specific car, we say the car, the red car, the new car, the old car, but the car adds specificity. In Greek, the article has lots of different functions just to turn your head inside out when you're trying to understand a passage like this. And here it all has the article. Every time this word is used, it has the article. And we'll talk about that uh, in just a minute. But it's making it's not making it necessarily specific. It has a slightly different uh, function here. And this word, all 11 times that it's used, always has the article. And we have some passages, for example, Romans 11.29 talks about the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, when a lot of people read this phrase, the calling, they want to translate it as the invitation to accept the gospel, because later we read, with which you were called. Now, there's the invitation part. In fact, as I was doing a lot of research on this word and looking it up in various uh, lexicons and various other uh, articles that were talking about this, I ran across a number of, of articles uh, where, uh, in, in, in well-respected uh, lexica where they said this always refers to the invitation to accept Christ as Savior. But after doing a word study on this, reading through the scripture, my response to that is, no, it doesn't. You're importing the meaning from the, from the uh, uh, verb into the noun. And a lot of times, nouns may be based on a word, but they, they don't uh, have the same meaning as its cognate, uh, cognate verb. So we have to look at this. And 1 Corinthians 7.20 is a very good illustration of this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.20, talking to these these believers who have gotten the idea that, oh, because I'm now a believer, I need to leave my job, leave my career, and go be a missionary. And so Paul says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So there he is using that phrase, the same calling, to refer to their, uh, their job, their, whatever it is they're doing. And for him, he was a tent maker. For others, it, it would be some other thing. Maybe they were a carpenter. Uh, maybe they were someone who b- built houses. Maybe they were uh, somebody who worked with the an- livestock. Uh, lots of different things. And he says, stay in that job, basically. And uh, David Lowry, who wrote the uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which was published by Dallas Seminary in the early 80s, and I hope they never, you know, it's been popular recently to take some of these really great commentary series and update them, and so they pick a whole new slate of authors. And uh, there was uh, one series where Everybody who was there had to be at least premillennial. 
And um, now that's not true. They've come up with, it was the Expositor's Bible Commentary Series, and now they've got a new set, the new Expositor's, and their on-mill and post-mill and all kinds of other pan-mills and everything else. You know what a pan-mill is. It'll all pan out in the end. So you've got all of this. So I hope that they never try to redo this. It's it's very, very good. And David Lowry happened to be uh, my Greek professor when I took uh, the course on 1 Corinthians. But in here he says, Likewise, a Christian's vocational situation is a matter of little consequence. If status can be changed, well and good. If not, it's not a matter for worry. What matters is that every Christian should realize he is Christ's slave and needs to render obedience to him. But that first line he recognizes that this phrase, the calling, can have that sense of a vocational uh, call. And we used to use that word sometime. You may talk to somebody and say, well, uh, I thought you went to college to be a teacher and you're not a teacher. And say, well, I realized that just wasn't my calling. We had that idiom, we got it from the Bible. And so that's how this, this phrase is used. Uh, Ephesians 1, 8 and, 1, 18 and Ephesians 4, 4 says, The eyes of your understanding, having already been enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And even there, it still adds the article to make sure we understand that this is t- using it in a little bit of a technical sense. And then it repeats that phrase, one hope of your calling in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Second Thessalonians 1.11 says, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. And Second Timothy 1.9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy or a unique or distinct calling. And then Hebrews uh, 3.1, that therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So this has something to do with heaven. So when we look at these usage, I came up with about four things that we ought to pay attention to. First of all, in each of these passages, the calling is uh, specified by an article. Now, according to Greek grammar, uh, the article is used for a lot of different reasons other than making a noun definite. But in order to really make your mind go foggy this morning, according to the grammar, uh, and I'm going to quote this, its, its use is uh, to nominalize something that would otherwise not be considered as a concept. What that means it's going to put a name on this thing. Now you know it's a concept. So that's our first first building block. And Dan Wallace in his uh, grammar uses this illustration. He says, for example, the word poor, that just expresses a quality. But if you add an article and talk about the poor, ah, now you have something, a specific concept that you can talk about. So at the very least, when you put the in front of calling, it is going to give it a, a, a specificity, not making it a definite noun, but it's going to talk, let, bring it up as a concept and emphasize, uh, emphasize this. And so we have to pay attention to that, that each of us has this calling. And what that relates to is our position and identity in Christ what's been covered in the first three chapters. That's our calling, it's our position in Christ. And so what we see is that the use of this phrase, uh, to walk worthy of the calling, the phrase of the calling uh, supplies the standard or the measure to which the adverb worthily points. How do you walk worthy? According to a standard. What's the standard? The standard is our calling. We each have the same calling, and that is our new identity in Christ with all the wealth and resources and assets that were given to us at the instant of salvation. One writer uh, writes in his commentary on Ephesians, the noun klesis, 
calling refers to the position of status, honor, and responsibility that God has entrusted to his saints. This is the same for all saints. Despite the diversity of the spiritual gifts they are given, Therefore, in biblical diction, this noun is never used in the plural. It's talking about our position in Christ. So it's not talking about the, uh, the invitation to be a believer, that we all had the same invitation. It's that now that we've accepted it, we all have the same position in Christ, and we are to walk worthy of that new position in Christ. So its emphasis is the forms the basis here uh, for the command to walk that we are to move forward in our Christian life from the understanding of who we are in Christ, what we've been given in Christ, which both summarizes our wealth in Christ, which is now shown to be the standard we must aspire to in our daily lifestyle. In other words, it's the same thing I've been saying all along. It summarizes the fact that you have a new position in Christ, I have a new position in Christ, and we have to live in accordance to that position in Christ. We have to live up to that standard. And so this is how Paul begins uh, this new chapter, that we have to walk worthy of this new, let's paraphrase it, this new identity, this new position, uh, this new... Uh, person that we are in Christ. And how do we do that? Well, that's going to be verse 2. With all, it's translated poorly. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. And so that's going to be the focus uh, next Sunday. But we have to walk worthy of our new identity in Christ. That is our calling. I'll be adding more to that next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and reflect upon them this morning, to realize that uh, we're saved, we are uh, placed in Christ, identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. We've been given a new identity. We're a new creature in Christ with a new package of assets, and we are to live consistent with that. We are to live in a way that Uh, brings honor to that, to understanding who we are in your family now and that we are to live in a way that uh, brings honor and glory to you. Father, we pray that uh, anyone listening today would recognize that that, that walking worthy is not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins. The sins are paid for. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. Uh, We don't have to be worthy of it to receive it. We just have to accept it as a free gift. And that once we do that, we are saved. You give us your righteousness, and we have eternal life. Father, we pray that anyone who is not saved and hears this, would uh, God the Holy Spirit would make the gospel very clear to them that they might trust in him. Father, we pray for us that we might be challenged uh, deep in our spiritual life to examine ourselves, to evaluate ourselves, and to learn more from Scripture, to hunger for Scripture, hunger for the truth, that we may learn what it means to walk in a worthy manner. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.